Methodist Church, we have three bishops. The lead bishop is our bishop, Bishop Matt. And uh, he is, all three bishops are actually retiring next year. Uh, But before I knew that, I asked Bishop Matt if he would come and come to our church and speak. Uh, I told him, I know it's not really on the way to anywhere because we're in Santa Barbara, uh, but would you please come? And so he and his wife, Marlene, have graciously come. Uh, Bishop Matt has been a a church planter, pastor, and uh, missionary. They have done incredible work uh, for years, and we are just so grateful that uh, he's here to share a little bit with us. And so please welcome Bishop Matt. You have a wonderful pastor. Did you know that? I mean, she, she's uh, sweeter than a, a grande or venti caramel macchiato with extra drizzle on top. I mean, just, uh, yeah. And she loves you. Uh, she, she comments on all of you. She loves pastoring you. And so I hope you appreciate her. Do you? Okay. Yeah. That's good. 12 nods and 20 claps. That's not bad. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Now, thank the Lord. Well, I want to thank you for being part of the ministry family of the Free Methodist Church. Um, You're part of about uh, somewhere around 18,000 churches in 106 countries. And, uh, and your ministry, I mean, believe it or not, whether you realize it or not, the contribution you've given to the missionaries that you serve and unwittingly you've contributed, uh, to some of the ministries that's gone around, uh, the world as well. And we're grateful for that. The church is growing rapidly in multiple areas of the world. Interestingly, the persecuted church is where it's growing the most in places in the Middle East and some other countries that I can't talk to you about. Uh, we just call them creative access countries. We have 17 of those where, um, we can't post on our website what mis- mis- ministries are going on there, but roughly a third of the Free Methodist churches around the globe are in those 17 countries, uh, creative access countries. Persecuted church, uh, the people are being maligned, they're being hurt. Uh, in fact, I get uh, communication almost daily or weekly that uh, of the people that have been arrested, imprisoned. Uh, in some cases, I've actually ordained people, laid hands on their head. In one case, a pastor named Solomon, his head was removed from him, uh, was cut off by a radical uh, group uh, shortly thereafter. And interestingly enough, um, his wife continued the ministry and planted five more churches after her husband was beheaded uh, in his uh, faith for the Lord. You're contributing, believe it or not, to all the good things that are going on around the globe. Every time there's a natural disaster, we have a thing called the Bishop's Crisis Response Fund. You've contributed to that and uh, and you've given a, a over and above and beyond and you've responded to the appeals that you've seen either on the website or in Light Life magazine. We're grateful for that. So thank you on behalf of the church. I get to be kind of um, at I've got uh, I've got courtside seats instead of the Los Angeles Lakers. I've got courtside seats to uh, to the best the best thing that's going on in the world. And that's the ministry of what God is doing around the world. So thank you very much for your participation. Uh, in fact, look at the person next to you cause you can't pat yourself on the back and pat them on the back and say, thank you. Okay. Could you do that? All right. That's good. Okay. There we go. All right. And you too. Yeah. Praise the Lord. 
So the whole the whole endeavor of missions, and I'll I'll tell a story or two. But uh, if you have your Bibles with you or your electronic device, um, you can open them up to. Actually, there's a pew Bible. I grabbed one. I thought this is a real Bible. I can uh, actually read one of these. I haven't read a real Bible in a long time because they get confiscated in a lot of the countries I go to. So I just take my electronic device. They never confiscate those. Somebody is actually texting me right now. It's buzzing in my pocket. But. Um, <laughs> But uh, in, in, uh, I, I'm going to talk to you about kind of a trend that you see in the Bible. And it's very different than what most people think about when they think in terms of missions. I know uh, sometimes it's looked at kind of glibly. Yeah, we're all missionaries. Yeah, okay, all right. I'm going to go back to work tomorrow and do my thing or whatever it is that you're doing. And you don't perceive yourself so much as a, a missionary. But let me give you a little different twist on that, if I might, for a few moments. So in Genesis chapter 12, um, not the same thing I was talking about last service or the service before. Is that okay? That's right. Okay. All right. So, um, yeah, don't talk to anybody from first service or second service. I talked about three specifically different things, uniquely different things. So in, uh, so, uh, this is God's call of a man named Abram, uh, from a land far, far away. And he lived in a, in a place they'd actually migrated from Ur the Chaldees up to Haran. And, uh, and then the Lord is calling him to another place when he went to this location. And this begins kind of a trend that you see. This is the father of our faith. He's really the first patriarch of the people of Israel. And you see it progress all the way through the new Testament. What I'm going to talk to you about. It says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. This is called the Abrahamic covenant. It's a covenant between the Lord. It's a promise of the Lord, what he's going to do for the people and uh, specifically for Abram and through Abram to, to the people. So this is his covenant to them. I'm going to, I'm going to make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And the Lord did that, right? Through his seed, who ultimately uh, was Jesus. All nations on earth have been blessed. All families on earth have been blessed because of that. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And he took his wife, Sarah, Sarai, excuse me, and his brother's son, Lot, and all the possessions that they'd gathered and the persons uh, whom they'd acquired in Haran. And they set forth to go to the land of Canaan. Okay, so uh, that begins kind of the journey. Now, here's what you see that's kind of unique about this story. So the Lord said to him, and he gave him three very specific instructions before he talked about the great covenant and that he was entering into him. He said, I want you to leave your land. I want you to leave your people. And I want you to leave your, essentially your culture or those people that you know closely. In other words, he said, the first thing he says out of his mouth is, I want you to go. Now he tells him what he's going to do there. But the first response we get from Abram is, is simply it's two words in Hebrew. It's three in English here. It says, so Abram left. So in other words, God said, I'm going to have you go leave everything you have. Leave everything that's familiar. You're going to go to a different language. You're going to go to a different people group. You're going to go to a different location. Uh, God says, going to do great things, but you go. So Abram says, okay. And we packed up and they moved. It doesn't say that there was really any delay. The issue was here. God said, I'm going to use you in a place that you're not comfortable with. I'm going to use you in a place that's not in your comfort zone. It's not the place that you're from. It's going to be a foreign language, a foreign culture, a foreign people. See, 
Marlene and I were called to be missionaries, and we didn't want to be missionaries. That was the last thing on our bucket list. In fact, that would have been the non-bucket list. Uh, I was pastoring a church. It was growing. It was thriving. And, uh, and we loved it. I, I literally have never in my life wanted to be a missionary. I thought, that just sounds... Uh, like something that is not comfortable. It's not something I, you know, I don't, I don't like the bugs, uh, you know, don't want to get the diseases, just none of that stuff. So we'll just stay home. So um, we're pastoring a church. The church actually tripled in a matter of two years when we were there and, and it was growing and I was hiring new staff and we were doing great things. Marlene and I went to a conference and uh, we heard a speaker speak and he was a person from overseas and uh, went to, you know, thought this was good. It wasn't too terribly impressive, but, uh, you know, it was nice. And he gave his little speech and did his thing. And we went uh, back to our, um, our place where we were staying, our hotel. We went to bed that night. We got up in the morning and I said, told Marlene, I said, you know, I had a strange dream. She said, I had one too. And I said, well, well you know, what was your dream? And she said, no, you tell me first. And, uh, you know, that's the way it works. So, you know, I had this weird dream that we got off an airplane and we were in the Philippines and people were saying, we're glad you're here to help us plant churches, which we'd been doing, planting churches and developing leaders and all that. And uh, I said, so what was your dream? And she said, it was the same one. Now that doesn't happen very often. And I thought, well, that could have been a coincidence. <laughs> so, <laughs> cause I really wanted it to be a coincidence. See, so at noon that day, we went back to the conference and I'm sitting there and uh, a guy came up. His name's John Gilmore. Some of the older Free Methodists would know who he was. He was, he was the director of personnel for Free Methodist World Missions at the time. And it was a very crowded place. And John came up and he was looking for a place to sit down. It, this was, uh, and, and he saw my name badge and he said, can I sit here? And I said, sure. He sat down and he said, your name has come up three times this morning. We were having a meeting, a missions meeting, and we need a missionary in the Philippines, and we needed somebody who could do leadership development, education, church planting, and uh, and uh, your name came up and said, well, this perfectly fits Matt Thomas, several people mentioned, so I'd like to talk to you about that, and I thought, okay, <laughs> so I thought, wow, that's something, so uh, then I went back to the church I was pastoring that I planned on continuing pastoring, and, uh, and I saw my sister. Now, my sister is a real prayer warrior. She loves the Lord. She prays all the time, and God lets her in on all kinds of stuff that, uh, where I hear silence. Um, my sister hears stuff, so uh, she hears the Lord speaking to her, and I went back, and I talked to uh, Lynn. She came up and gave me a kiss right on the cheek, right there. You know, it's an older sister thing, so she kissed me on the cheek one day. She was in our congregation. She said, you're my favorite pastor. I love your preaching. I love everything about the ministry. The Lord is blessing here. But she said, and with tears in her eyes, she said, I'm going to miss you when you go. The Lord told me you're going to be a missionary in the Philippines. So I thought, okay, that's right. So I thought we packed up and we left. Uh, took a little more convincing than Abram. You know, I want you to go and uh, go there and do that. And I thought, and I'm going to come back to this part of the story a little while later. By the way, when I was elected as a bishop, somebody said all the things. They said, well, he, he's, somebody said, well, who are you going to vote for? One of the people back east. And they said, well, I'm going to vote for Matt Thomas to be bishop. Why? And uh, this layman asked, he's an insurance man from upstate New York. He said, why would you vote for him? Well, he's been a missionary, a church planter. He's been an educator. Uh, he's been a pastor. And he's been a consultant and uh, done church growth work throughout the denomination. The other guy looked at him and said, well, that just sounds like he can't hold down a job. So... <laughs> 
<laughs> so that was me. I can't hold down a job. So we, but the missionary part fit into our uh, resume just a little while. We were only there about three years. And I'll come back to that later. So what you see with the pattern with Abram is Abram, God says, I want you to go. And I'm going to do all the stuff, but only when you go. Now, could God have done it where he was at? Absolutely. Did he? No. There's something about the reliance that we have upon the Lord when we say, uh, okay, Lord, you can, you can put me in a place where I'm wholly dependent upon you, where I can't rely upon my own ability and my own strength. And that's the pattern that's established all the way through the Bible. You have a, uh, a long time later, <laughs> you have a guy named Joseph who happens to be the son of the son of the son of, uh, of Abram. And so, you know, you have Isaac and then Jacob and then Joseph uh, kind of is there. And God used him almost like, in fact, the term Savior is used of him. He's, he occupies the majority of the end of the book of Genesis, uh, 12 pe- chapters toward the end. There's a story really mostly about Joseph during, that, uh, during his time in Egypt. And he went and he delivered the people. You know why he was there? His brothers wanted to kill him. They wanted to do away with him. They didn't want him anywhere near the family, and so they took him out. Actually, he went out to find his brothers, and when they saw him, they were jealous of him because the, the brothers that he had knew that he was dad's favorite. Uh, if, you're, if you're dad's favorite, you're dad's favorite, raise your hand, okay? All right. See, that's always the way it is. There's only two people here because you all think you had a sibling that was dad's favorite. So uh, Joseph was dad's favorite. It actually says that. Uh, tells us that Jacob really loved him because he was born in his old age, etc. And uh, the marvelous things that, that uh, he lavished upon this son, Joseph. So his brothers were jealous. They wanted to kill him. Uh, one of them made a specific plan. They were going to kill him. Somebody else said they were going to throw him in a cistern, let him just die of starvation down in the hole. And then they came up with this elaborate plan that they would uh, go ahead and, and uh, you know, uh, make a kill a goat or whatever, and then take the blood from that, put it on Joseph's really colorful coat, take it back, say, boy, he was devoured by wild beasts. And, uh, and this is all that was remaining of him and all that. They, they'd worked all that stuff. Well, the oldest brother, um, he wanted to not kill him. So the oldest brother, Reuben, ended up seeing a a Midianite caravan that was heading off to Egypt. And he said, let's, let's sell him to that group. That way he at least stays alive and his blood is not on our head. Are, are, you, with, are you with me? So one person wanted to kill him. Another person wanted to throw him in a cistern. And he saw that. And it was the first, uh, he just dodged the whole problem. It was the first Dodge caravan. He said, I'm going to just dodge this whole thing and create. Some of you didn't even get that. Some of you did, but you don't care. So, uh, so he sold him into slavery, and he went into slavery, etc. And guess what the Lord did? He delivered all the people in Egypt and all the people of Israel through him being in a place where he didn't want to be. And so Moses comes along several hundred years later, and he was right in the prime of his life and the place. He was being raised in Pharaoh's household. He was the best of all worlds. He was a a Jew and supportive of the Jews, but he was raised as a, as an Egyptian. He could have really been a deliverer, but guess what he does? He ends up getting in trouble. He killed an Egyptian who was uh, harming a Jew and it's found out it's discovered. The King wants to kill him. So he escapes the land. He's out kicking rocks and watching sheep at the edge of a mount, Mount Horeb. Uh, when the Lord speaks to him in a burning bush and says, guess what I want you to do. I want you to go back 
to Egypt, the place where they want your head, because I'm going to actually deliver the whole nation of Israel through you there. And he didn't want to go. I mean, he was persona non grata there. Are you, are you with me? Do you follow? He didn't want to go. I mean, he wanted to stay out there with Jethro, his wife, Zipporah. He wanted to be uh, just left alone. Wherever you send me, don't send me back. You know, it would be like Donald Trump's approval rating is really, really low. He's being assailed and uh, accosted by everybody. He just needs a safe place to go. I know where I'll go. I'll go to Iran. You know, I mean, that, that makes no sense, right, uh, for him to, to decide that. Well, that's what God said. I want you to go back to Egypt. So he went back to Egypt and guess what the Lord did? He did the greatest work that he'd ever done through Moses in that environment where he sent him back and pulled the people out. He could have used anybody else would have probably had uh, a big impact. Instead, he used the person who was probably the least probable person to be there. And it goes on and on and on. Jonah, the last place on earth he wanted to be was in a place called Nineveh. Guess where God sent him? He turned into be shark barf to uh, be spit out on the land. He had to go there and all of that. But, uh, but that's where he was. David, uh, even Samuel never saw, the prophet who anointed him never saw him as amounting to anything or being worth of this. And, and he really was kind of, he was the runt of the litter and he really was hated by the king. And the Lord put him in a place that was extraordinarily out of a place where he was comfortable at all. And he became the greatest king of all. And in the New Testament, it doesn't slow down. The one person, the only person strategically that all of us in this church would say, that's the person I want to reach the Jews. It would be the person who was most notable about Jewish culture. You know who that was? That was a guy named Saul. His name was changed to Paul. And the Lord struck him blind on the road to Damascus. And the first thing out of the mouth of the Lord through the man Ananias, the very first week that he's there, is I'm going to make you a light to the Gentiles. In other words, I'm going to send you to the place where you do not belong. And the people that you fit with most, I'm going to use somebody else. You know, uh, Saul didn't even like Gentiles. In fact, he kind of was raised with antipathy toward them. And God says, I'm making you a missionary to that group. So who's he going to reach the Jews with? Well, let's just take a guy that's referred to as an ignorant, unschooled fisherman who didn't have any respectability among the Jewish nation. But his name's Peter. And we'll throw a, his brother, Andrew, and, and a couple of other brothers named James and John. And they became the leaders of the church that ministered to the Jews even though the Jews couldn't stand them because they just weren't schooled and they weren't the right kind of people. Do you understand what God does? There's a pattern here. It's not just a, it's not this kind of flip exception to the rule. It is the rule. I have people come to me all the time and say, well, I can't do that, Bishop Thomas or Pastor Matt back in the day. And I'd say, why? And say, well, I'm not really good at that. And I said, well, then you're a perfect candidate for it. We can't, you know, we can't contribute a lot to missions because we're not a rich church. No, this is a perfect church to then to do missions. You know, we had a major uh, disaster a number of years ago. Remember when that huge tsunami just absolutely devastated the shores of India, Indonesia, Sri Lanka, Malaysia? Um, do you remember that? And Thailand? Thailand actually got hit worse of all of them. Is anybody old enough to remember that? Yeah, well, we tried to raise money to do relief because we have thousands of churches in that area. And many of them were devastated. Um, We lost 
hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of lives of your brothers and sisters, and houses were destroyed, churches were destroyed, and so we thought, how do we commence about going about doing this and uh, raising the funds? And we raised money. We raised about $200,000. I think it did quite a bit of work, and uh, then the money kind of slowed down to a trickle. Actually, it was a little under 200000 It was about $180,000, and that just stretches so far. Uh, probably the estimated um, repairs that we would need, we'd need a couple million dollars, so we only had about a, a tenth of what we needed. And uh, one of those gifts was an interesting gift that we received, and I happened to get it as I was on an international trip, and I was going to Asia, where I travel a lot. And I received this gift, and I put it in my briefcase, and I forgot about it. It was the gift from the people in Haiti. And Haiti is one of the poorest countries in the world. The overwhelming majority of free Methodists in that country live on less than $2 a day. They make less than $2 a day. But they, the, the leader of the church there, the superintendent at the time, he wanted to marshal some support and raise some money for to help the brothers and the sisters in Thailand and India. Never, none, nobody had been out of the country, so they didn't even know really necessarily where those places were, but they knew there was a need. So they uh, appealed for every church, which we had more than a hundred to contribute to this. And you know how much was raised? $218 and 36 cents. And I had it in my briefcase and I was with a, a group of leaders from all over Asia. And I just mentioned, I said, you know, there's a, in South Asia, I was in North Asia. I said, uh, you know, some of our brothers and sisters have been hit really hard. And I, I told them, I said, we've given a lot of money, but it's, not, you know, some stuff's not coming in. And we need another couple, two or $300,000, but we just don't have it. Maybe four or 500000 I don't know how to get it. And I said, by the way, I've got a gift here. And I told them the story about what the $218 that the Haiti church gave. And at the end of that story, people started saying, we'll commit 50000 Somebody else said, we'll commit 100000 We'll commit 75000 and we raised another $275,000 in that moment. Use the most unusual people in the most unusual way in a place that probably wouldn't have really mattered when we do the math the way we do the math. But God doesn't do the math that way. He wants people wholly dependent upon him, reliant upon him. And the best mission contributing people are people that just understand the extraordinary way in which God works. He does it that way all the time. You know, uh, he called a guy named Gideon. And, uh, and it shouldn't surprise us. It tells us this about Gideon. It says, and this is in Judges chapter 6. It says, Gideon was the least person in his family. And his family was the least family in his clan. And the, that clan happened to be the least clan in the, least, in the tribe. And the tribe that he was part of, Manasseh, was called the least tribe in Israel. And it's just like God says, who am I going to use to defeat this huge Midianite army that's beyond a number to count? I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the smallest of the smallest of the smallest of the small. Perfect. I'll do it with that one. And Gideon was trying to hide from God. He says, I'm not qualified. Moses did the same thing. Send my brother, somebody else. Um, but the Lord says, perfect. You're perfect. And I'm going to. Redeem. And the Lord kind of gives us a little window why he used Gideon. You know what he said? You find it in Judges chapter 7, verse 2. When he starts and he says, Gideon says, i got to have a big army. So he, he enlists the support of everybody. And 32,000 people show up. And God said, that's too many. Again, God wants it a little bit smaller, right? 
He wants a little bit less. That's the pattern. So he says, tell the, all the people who are afraid to go home. So 22,000 of the 32,000 went home. That means how many were remaining? Boy, we have no mathematicians here. We're right in the, you know, the shadow of Westmont, and nobody can do math. That's 10,000 people that are remaining. Now, now stick with me here. So he says, so God says, it's still too many. I want you to take the people down to the water. So he takes them down to the water. And you know what he, what he tells them to do? I want you to tell the people to drink. Okay, so he tells the people to drink. The problem is, is Jews know that they can't, they can't use their hands because their hands may have touched a dead animal. They haven't been ceremonially cleaned. Uh, you cannot use your hands to drink unless you drink. You have to have the ceremonial washing or you have to have the right kind of vessel that's declared clean to be able to do that. They didn't have either. And so they went down there. And so n- most of the people knew that. So they got down without touching anything with their hands and they drank. They got their knees dirty and wet and everything else. They got their garments wet. They bent down and they drank the water out of the side. There were 9,700 of them that did it the right way. There were 300 lazy people that said, eh, and they reached down and they lapped the water out of their hand like a dog. It's the clean, uncleanest, and it's the smallest group of the whole batch, and they're all lazy, and God says, perfect, I'll use them. And who wins the battle? The 300, right? I mean, you know the story. If you don't, you go back and read there. I'm telling you the truth. It's in the Bible. That's the way the Lord does it. So you might say, here we are in Santa Barbara, and we're not a huge church. Uh, what can we do? You can do a lot. You might be saying, I don't really have the ability to, I'm not really good with my words and this, that, and the other. I can't be a huge missionary or a witness in my workplace, etc. I stumble over the things I say. I don't know. Here's the one I get all the time. I don't know a lot of the Bible, and I get my stories mixed up. One of the best evangelists I've ever met is a guy that was a drug addict. I led him to the Lord. His name was Dan Sigler. He messed everything up in the Bible, led everybody to Jesus. Because he couldn't get his story straight. I mean, he had Moses confused with David. And he said he quoted Benjamin Franklin thinking it was Jesus once. And he led a guy to Jesus. It's not a matter of our qualifications. It's a matter of God's call and his empowerment. And that's the way he does stuff. He always will. So you're never going to do your most significant work in a place where you feel most qualified and most comfortable, it will always be in a place where you feel least qualified, least capable, and God's going to say, perfect. Just don't say no to God because you don't feel like it fits you. Okay? I want you to pray with me. So uh, stand if you would. And uh, worship team is going to come forward. We're going to sing a song right before we close our time. And, uh, but I want you to just bow for a word of prayer. If you would, and I'm going to ask anyone who is just saying, I want to be used of the Lord in a way, regardless of the area of discomfort it may cause. If you would just, with your heads bowed, your eyes closed, nobody's looking, uh, just raise your hand and say, I want to be used in a place where it might even be awkward. Would you raise your hand? It's just a sign of obedience to the Lord. Amen. Okay, you can put your hands down now. Let's just pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for your goodness to us. Lord Jesus, you're the best example of all. You've resided in in heaven for eternity, created all that we see, etc. And your most significant work for us was not in that place of residence. 
But it says in the scripture that you humbled yourself, became obedient even to death on a cross. So out of place. And yet, Lord, you did the most uh, redeeming work. The reason we stand here saved is because you left that place of comfort. And I pray, God, I know that your call always draws us to something that's a little unusual, a little different. Thank you, God, for the people around the world, the people in Haiti, the, the churches that were just planted today in Nepal that we just heard about this morning. Lord, I thank you for the people that are being obedient to you and these creative access countries because I know they have nothing, but they have you, which gives them everything. We give you thanks and praise, Lord. We will be obedient to do what you want us to do, to go where you want us to go. And like Abram, without delay, when you call us and say, leave, we will go. When you tell us to give, we will give. When you tell us to share, we will share. We thank you. We depend upon you and your power and your strength. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.